0: Bana, mana, 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 ba, 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 ba. This is social discasting. Welcome to social discasting, a podcast where my guests and I discuss our lives amidst the wanton hellscape in which we find ourselves. I am Brandon, aka Brandon. Hope you're well. My guest is a writer at Knock LA, as well as an organizer with No Olympics LA, Ground Game LA, and the People's City Council. Please welcome Albert Carrado. Welcome.
1: Hey, thanks for having me on, Brandon. Appreciate you uh, reaching out.
0: Absolutely. Thank you for coming on. I really do appreciate your time. First question, just how are you?
1: Okay, this is this is a conversation I've been having recently with friends. Is like I'm feeling pretty good, despite there being a global pandemic and. All sorts of horrible stuff happening in the world. Like, obviously, that's something that I think about and that affects me, and I feel awful about it. But personally, I feel like for me, this has been one of the better years I've had. I've been able to do a lot of good work and accomplish a lot of things. And even though there is this pandemic and people are in lockdown and, and all that sort of stuff, I've been able to make the most of that. And, um, you know, also, like, I had a really terrible 2018 and 2019. So, comparatively, this is a lot better of a year, even though there's all this. Stuff going on, so I, I'm gonna say I'm doing fairly well given the circumstances, and I feel like I feel so again it feels weird saying that, but that's also the truth. After you lose someone that you really love, a pandemic really doesn't match up to that. So I'm I'm doing pretty all right here in California.
0: Well, that's good. I know what you mean, though, in terms of feeling like you're doing at least pretty good amidst all of this and this in the background this unfathomable stuff feeling you know and it, granted it does fluctuate just depending on how you know because we're all riding this truly like wild wave of what's happening and just being able to intellectually process it on some level but a part of me did feel has felt a little almost guilty like the fact that I'm feeling pretty good all things considered at the same time it's like what can you do because I could just as easily be languishing in all this as would be completely understandable considering how unfathomable it is
1: yeah yeah I mean I think no one would blame you you or me if we just decided to just kind of do nothing and stay in and you know that's fine we all deserve that at some point but for me just my timeline has been so out of whack that like when you know last year I as the year ended I was really getting into organizing and starting to do lots of work around around this stuff and um you know, it just kept going. And and even though the pandemic, like as soon as the pandemic started, I, I basically went into high functioning mode, like I, I started doing mutual aid and doing all this stuff. So and again, we, we all have the opportunity to kind of take some time off or or not be as involved as we want to be and I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing we all need to do as much as we can but also like take care of ourselves and that's something that I'm trying to balance is that like that thing of like wanting to just be as involved as possible but then also like giving myself some some breathing room and some time to process and all that but again I mean as as I'm sure we'll get into later in the episode or whatever like I had a long time where I was just not doing much of anything because I was just so depressed so now I'm like I gotta make up for all the lost time
0: you know what I mean? Absolutely. No, I know exactly what you mean. You mentioned the organizing. I did want to ask about that. What got you into the organizing? Because you're an organizer in quite a few uh, organizations.
1: Yeah, I mean, so my this all started because my sister Melly was killed by LAPD at the Trader Joe's in Silver Lake here in California. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, it wasn't an immediate thing where I was like, okay, the next day I'm going to go out and start getting involved. It was more of a, I think it was a very eye opening thing. And it was, you know, my sister who I was extremely close with and lost and, you know, was at the hands of police. And so I think, you know, once I gave myself time to, get to a better place with it, I started going to therapy and group therapy and just practicing a lot of self care and, and that sort of stuff. I think it was after the first year, this was so she, she was killed in July of 2018. And so I'd say July of 2019 was when I kind of started to really think about my next steps. And my working life has always been service, like service jobs, you know, like being a waiter, being a bartender, I was a barista, doing all that sort of stuff. And so I, I never had any real, real fulfillment in my professional life. And so once, once I kind of gotten to a better headspace and was able to engage with the world again in a way that was felt somewhat normal, I decided that I wanted to start getting involved. But I wasn't really sure of how, what, what that meant or where to go and what the organizations were called and all that. So I, I just remember thinking I had started working at this place called Stumptown. It's like a, like a local coffee shop. I think they're yeah. from or Portland. Yeah, they're kind of famous. But I started working there. And I remember seeing like we were like working in downtown and we were a block away from Skid Row, which is, has one of the largest unhoused populations in, in all of California and, um, I would see, you know, these unhoused folks come in and want to use a bathroom or, or just, you know, ask for money or whatever. And I, I remember just seeing these, um, private security guards of the, of the business improvement district come and harass them. And I remember being like, I don't, I don't want to be a part of like a company and a place that would do, that would call, you know, we had a panic button, like, oh, in case one of these, you know, the, the building owner was like in case one of these, um, you know, homeless people gets out of hand, we'll push that button and they'll come and, and get them. And then I, I remember just Heck, not, yeah. not being super cool with that and being, being like this is awful and I don't want to work in a place that promotes that kind of stuff and and so I remember one day just seeing uh, one of those private security officers like harassing an unhoused black man and I just was like I, I need to do something and I so I and, and I had always wanted to you know do some sort of like whatever like a soup kitchen or something and so I just started looking up local organizations and I had been on this podcast called the LA Podcast and they talked about SELA which was like a big you know homeless uh, neighborhood coalition and, and they were kind of based in a neighborhood that I live close to. So I just went one day to, to volunteer and that's kind of where my my life in organizing started. I, I showed up, started to meet people, started to hear about what was going around on around town with you know homelessness, but also policing, and and once I started to get to know more people and hear about more organizations. You know, I had quit my job at Stumptown and, and had all this free time. So I just started showing up to meetings and being more and more involved and, and, and just like trying to be as indispensable as possible and just show up and learn as much as I could and get to know as many people as I could. And I'm a naturally like social person. So like I found it very easy to connect with people and, and do that kind of stuff. And so that was what started as just like going to hand out hygiene kits and, and food to unhoused people turned into now being very heavily involved in what's going on in the city and and I I don't think that I ever was gonna be doing anything like this.
0: It definitely sounds like it happened in a very organic way, like this led to that and it kind of played to your tendencies and your history of working with people, whether that be at, at Stumptown or just going to these different like city council meetings then and that progressing to everything just kind of on a more city level and, how, and helping people and that kind of fulfillment too of, it's one thing obviously, and, and that it has a place too of donating money, but it's another thing to enact tangible change in a one-to-one way. How did you get involved in the No Olympics LA?
1: Funny enough, uh, no Olympics was one of the one of the first things I ever saw after Melly was killed that kind of gave me a peek into the the organizing and activism world was so they had made these um, missing posters with Eric Garcetti on them. And Eric Garcetti is the mayor of L.A. You know, someone kind of ran the numbers and they realized that, like, he was out of town one out of every three days. You know, people knew that he kind of wanted to run for president. So he was always out of town trying to, like, build some momentum or something. But he was never here. And yeah. they had done a series of these missing posters and it was like, oh, can someone, <laughs> you know, can someone find my son, Eric Garcetti? He, he was absent when this big thing happened. And one of the posters I saw was my son, Eric Garcetti's missing. He was he was out of town when Melly Corrado was murdered at the at, by LAPD at Trader Joe's. And I remember thinking like, whoa, that, that was I was like, wow, that, people are. Because it was a big thing. It was on the news and we were being hounded by media. But just to see a local organization messaging around that, I I felt like so blown away by it. But at the time, I was not anywhere near ready to engage with that stuff. But once again, I I started doing stuff. I, I kind of sought them out on social media and then went to a meeting and had already kind of had bad feelings about the Olympics and hearing stories from like relatives and people who were here for the 84 Olympics and how it changed LA. I already had a little bit of a, you know, not great feeling about it, but I, I figured, you know what, I want to check this this organization out. Like they were talking about Melly like a week or two after she was killed. And um, I, I just want to see what it's all about. And I, I met some great people and really threw myself into the work and uh, started to learn more and more about, about not just the policing aspect of the Olympics, but you know, the housing and the gentrification and the environmental disasters and all that sort of stuff. And I would say it's, it's one of the things I'm proudest to be a part of. And it's, there's a lot of really amazing, wonderful people in that, in that group. And, um, you know, and it, it it all started because of that poster, it it stuck into my, my mind. And, And a year later I went to a meeting and was like, Oh, I guess I'm part of this now
0: that's a hell of an origin story for that (laughs) and you know but also though again another very organic way where that planted the seed like to your point uh, certainly you weren't ready for that and then it just kind of stuck in your mind and you went back to it but the olympics is a very interesting case to put it lightly in the ioc being like fifa these quote-unquote nonprofit organizations that are courted by these places there is massive corruption involved rio and tokyo most recently being these examples of massive corruption people resigning after taking millions to be quartered by them and like you know even in 2019 there was a story about the japan olympics even in the run-up to it how they were the the quote-unquote most prepared site they've ever seen but then they have projections of having spent potentially up to 25 billion dollars which is almost four times the budget that was actually like accounted for or quoted so it's just the idea that these nonprofit organizations only benefit rich people that have a vested interest in that regard of courting them they pay for it they just parasitically live off the infrastructure and the people that in no way whatsoever benefit are the actual residents
1: Yeah, and and, you know, and most of those people who live in these cities can't even afford to go watch the Olympic Games, which is just the, you know, the final insult is like, your city's been ravaged, your people have been displaced, your police force has become militarized and, and, you know, willing to kill people for a two-week event, and then once they leave, the people are are left to pick up the pieces, but, you know, you can't even say, oh, well, I got to go see you know, the 100-meter dash, but you can't do it because it's too, too expensive, and so you don't even get the pleasure. It reminds me of, like, being and specialty coffee and like you're like having coffee from ethiopia and mexico like these incredible coffees but like most of the people who are harvesting this and who live in those countries won't ever actually taste that amazing coffee they get left with like this sort of bad crops you know it's, it's a yeah. this world we live in is is awful <laughs> honestly
0: no it really is and it feels All fucked, frankly.
1: Yeah, yeah, 100%.
0: And I remember, too, when I think with the bidding process, quote-unquote bidding process, I don't know if it was 2024 or 2028, the Boston mayor spoke out saying that they would not go after the Olympics. And there were a lot of Boston residents that were not happy about that. I don't know what it is, if maybe it's just kind of more of a tourist thing and they just know, I like watching the Olympics. Or that they don't know that the branding around the IOC is very uh, effective, I guess, because, you know, especially places like Boston in that example of there's a high population, but not a big city. And it would completely ravage that city if they were to have courted that with L.A. and Garcetti being, uh, to put it lightly, incredibly opportunistic, all about the optics. A real shitbird, Re- just a truly, real piece of shit. Truly,
1: one of the biggest shitbirds in in all of this this whole country.
0: Like a real piece of shit. He's not even gonna be there when it happens. All he wants is like the resume edition, the optics, right? I read your pieces too. How it's a group. Of people that are going to be watching over this, and you don't even know who those people are. Yeah. Everything about it is just truly insidious, and it's just added to the fact that the Olympic motto is faster, higher, stronger. Which, when you look at it through the prism of this abject greed and this parasitic way in which it just sucks all the life forces from the cities that it goes to each time, it's truly wild. Like, I completely understand why this is a fight worth having.
1: Yeah, I mean, and and, you know, one thing that we always talk about is like, I think the IOC has done an amazing job of making people feel like the Olympics are a necessary thing, because they've been going on for such a long time. Yeah, there's pageantry, there's all this stuff. They've done a really good job of that. And what our goal and one of the hurdles that we have to overcome is convincing people that this isn't something that we need. And that, you know, as much as people may love to watch sports in the Olympics, it shouldn't come at the expense of people's livelihoods, shouldn't come at the expense of the environment. And, you know, we can love sports. And, and watch them and partake in them. I mean, I grew up being a big Laker fan and all that stuff. And, and I'm sure every people, a lot of people have a lot of allegiances to their teams and all that. And that's great. That's fine. But again, it shouldn't come at the expense of people who are marginalized because they never build these stadiums. They never put them in, in Beverly Hills or these like really rich enclaves. They always put them in these marginalized communities yeah. that are already struggling, that are already like struggling to get by. And then you displace people, people become homeless, people die, all these sort of things. And so I think, You know, we do a a really good job of messaging around taking every single veil off of the Olympic machine, whether it's like, you know, the Olympic athletes are paid well. Ninety five percent of them are not. Most of them are not Michael Phelps. Uh, They're not going to be on the box of Wheaties, whether it's like transit people. Oh, the Olympics like fixes transit. It's like they only improve transit in the neighborhoods that the Olympics are going to be in, which are usually rich neighborhoods. So like stuff to and from the airport and, and a couple of lines here and there, but they don't actually help the community that actually need better transit so we try to go and and attack it on on every single side and that's why i kind of love no olympics more than a lot of works because like if you're into housing justice if you're into policing if you're into a lot of things that plague a city the olympic machine is going to exacerbate all of those things so getting involved in no olympics is not just you know it's not just one thing it's it's many many things that you can help out on and and we have people who do really great research about environmental effects or or housing or whatever we have people who like like me who's very into the policing aspect of it i I think you know we are in a in a moment in time where like people are more willing to learn than ever and if you just give them the information in a way that they can understand they're going to engage with it and then you know like i've been able to talk to friends of mine and bring them into the movement because again, they were just sitting around. Oh, I thought I didn't know the Olympics were that bad. It's like, once you tell people, once you start to connect all the dots, you know, and and look at the tentacles uh, of capitalism and the IOC and all that sort of stuff, the picture becomes more clear that like the Olympics is the last thing it's about is sports. It's all about the elites lining their pockets and and real estate developers and all that sort of stuff. The sports are just like they just happen to be there.
0: The sports part is the most inconvenient thing for the IOC, <laughs> right? You yeah, know? Exactly. it's like they're almost probably resentful of. It's like, oh, okay, well, we just hit the lottery, and then, oh shit, now we got to actually do this shit. I'm like, fuck, you know, like that's that that's an income. You know, that. But then again, you know, there's a direct parallel with, unfortunately, just sports in general. Seemingly, the pro sports is that you have all these owners which so many, if not all of them, are just again, Garcetti-esque shitbirds, who <laughs> are deeply inconvenienced by their own employees, the people that actually make the thing work because they're the ones actually doing it, you know and so, it's like they say about sports franchises, the reason every billionaire or whatever, wants to get into sports franchises is because they don't depreciate, and that doesn't seem to be the case, certainly for being an Olympic host city if you're a rich person with a literal and figurative vested interest in having them come on like it's so insidious and to your point about about bringing friends in it's a very probably unfortunately a very easy argument to make and to get people to see where you're coming from on that because it's so undeniably awful
1: yeah I mean it's um and you know part of my sort of ethos as an organizer is it's like i i was never part of this world i mean obviously like i've always been someone who is is i believe in in human rights and and all that stuff and i i would have considered myself a liberal a few years ago right and like mm-hmm it took this horrible tragedy happening to me to engage with this work. But I I don't, you know, I never went to college, I I was like, it's not for me. Like, I I, I never, you know, I didn't grow up reading theory and and all this stuff. So like, for me, it's kind of like, I want to bring people in who who feel like they might not belong, because that's how I felt initially. Yeah, I'm not a shy person. I'm not someone who necessarily doubts myself a lot, but I definitely was a little intimidated coming into this world because not only you're coming into a movement, uh, uh, you know, that has people and that have been involved in it for a long time, but you're also coming into a social circle, whether whatever organization that is, you have people who know each other who have shorthand, who are friends who are, you know, been doing the work together. So it can feel a little intimidating to kind of come into a social circle that's also talking about something that you may not know every single thing about. And what I've been trying to do is kind of tell people, Hey, like you don't need to have any of these things. You don't need a degree. You don't need. You don't need, need to have read a ton of books. Just show up, willing to learn and willing to use whatever talents you might naturally have already. Mm-hmm. You know, for the movement, but also be willing uh, to learn other stuff. Because I mean, I love doing spokesperson stuff for No Olympics. I love going on podcasts or being interviewed about about No Olympic stuff. And because that's just my my way of being is I'm just good at like communicating with people about stuff. And so yeah. that's where my natural talents come into play, but also. Like, you know, I I want to learn about how to do other organizing things or how to build a presentation about the 84 Olympics or whatever. So, you know, that's for me is like and of course, I have this thing of like everyone knows or most everyone is going to know my story or once I mention Melly and her murder and all that they're going to be like oh yes I I know what you're talking about so for me I I never shy away from that mostly because she was my sister I loved her I'm never gonna I'm never gonna lie about what happened or I'm never gonna deny that it happened but also like you know I I want people to know like hey this is if something has happened to you that's awful uh, you don't have to get involved you don't have to become an activist or whatever Mm -hmm. but you can and you can use some of the anger and some of the pain that you suffer uh, or have suffered in a positive way. And I feel like that is my ultimate goal is like to show people that, hey, you can go through something really awful and, and, and you can take all the time you need to deal with it. But there can also be really positive things that will come out of this, you know? And so like every positive thing that I'm a part of right now, every victory we might have is a direct result of, you know, my involvement is a direct result of Melly having been killed. And that is something that's really hard to contend with and to, to be okay with. But ultimately that's the way it is. You know, they're, they, you know, thinking about what my life will. be like if Melly were here it it doesn't really do much for me these days you know it's more of a a hindrance than anything it's now i'm just kind of like yeah this is my life i only know these amazing people because i lost someone so incredibly dear to me that's you know it's one of those weird things about life right like the the balancing act of like of just how you know if you live long enough you will have really incredible times but you also have really really awful awful stuff happen and that is what in a way makes life worth living but also makes it kind of hard to get out of bed some days
0: no absolutely like um well to your point like there's no right or wrong way to grieve but obviously ideally if you can figure out a way to positively channel that like you have with your activism and organizing yeah unfortunately in life you don't remember the mundane (laughs) You don't remember that day you ate a ham sandwich in two thousand eight. You just remember the best and the absolute worst. And it was, a good,
1: it was a good sandwich, though. It was a good
0: sandwich. I know. You know, like so. Hey, maybe that's a bad example because that wasn't particularly memorable sandwich 12 years ago so bad example that's on me no i get it (laughs) yeah no i know yeah (laughs) so i was curious to like with you know with these different organizations that you work with how has covid affected that
1: um you know actually in a way it's like obviously we had to move everything online and do zoom calls but i think because people have more time on their hands and uh, i mean unfortunately obviously some people laid off and all that sort of stuff we're having a huge influx of people come into the movement yeah no olympics we've onboarded um you know i'm one of the no, sort of new member liaisons and what i was just talking about earlier about wanting to get people involved and make sure that they feel comfortable we started doing new member meetings and new member stuff because i was like really pushing that so we have a ton of new members coming in, a ton of people who are engaging with our social media. And same thing with like Ground Game or People City Council. You know, we have a ton of people who want to get involved. And once we figured out, I mean, it didn't take long to figure out that we can still have protests that are socially distant and responsible. We started yeah. doing car protests and now it's moved to like in-person protests, you know, outside of the cars and people are becoming more comfortable. But we're always saying, hey, if you want to show up and you're still scared about COVID, if you're being cautious, we need car support. We need people who do that or we need people who can just like do remote work you know uh, listen to police scanners boost stuff on social media so covid has really brought more people into the movement but also kind of built out different ways of people getting involved because i don't i don't see that even even when things go back to where we can be in the same room as people in in a year or whatever. I think we're not going to lose people who are going to want to do remote stuff because they're busy because whatever. Whatever the reason is they're going to still want to do that and so I think we're finding ways of adapting to this new way but also like making and making the most out of that and and we have so many people who want to get involved. You know we live in LA so like we have a ton of people who want to work on film stuff but like we have a lot of people who do that so maybe we need people who can do graphic design or who can do remote work or whatever. So we right now are are doing our best to funnel them to where we think they're going to work best and and taking care to like make sure that everyone feels like they're doing as much work as they can, but obviously trying not to overload them because again, people have a lot more time, but that also means that they're taking a lot of work on and that leads to burnout and that's what we don't want. So I think COVID has really made, I mean, for me personally, I mean, I, I never went into quarantine or lockdown. I started doing mutual aid work and started, you know, sending food to people in need around town. And I was working in a the, you know, ground game, basically turned their office into mutual aid food distribution hub. And we would we would pack food up for people and send it out with drivers. You know, so if anything, we are working at full capacity, even though there's a there's a pandemic on. We yeah. are working at full capacity. We are, I, I think, as as fully staffed as you know, to, for lack of a better term, we're as fully staffed as possible. There's so many people who want to get involved, and I think that um one of the things that we always talk about is is retaining those people, right? Like people always, sure. When the protests blew up and all that stuff, we got a ton of people, and as as always, you know, people kind of lose interest, and because it's not not every week is going to be as exciting as as the week of of the you know that crazy police commission meeting and all that. So we yeah. have to make sure that we we have people who are willing to do the work, even when it's not like as immediate or as crazy as possible. And I, I think so far, we've been pretty good at that. But it, it, it's Yeah, it's showing us that like, I mean, every person I talk to in the local tenants unions are saying that their memberships have doubled, because Oh, wow, people are just wanting to get involved. I think, this pandemic is affecting people who normally would not be affected. Yeah. You know, it's affecting people who are already struggling to get by even pre-COVID, but it's also affecting people who never would have guessed that they would be in the position of, of having to choose between food or rent. Yeah. You know, so yeah, so it's, it's, I think it's showing a lot of people, more and more people each day, the failure of our city, but also the failure of, I think, capitalism and our country and the way it's run. So right now it's a good time to get into organizing because there is a lot of work that needs to be Done. and the more people we get involved in this the more successful we're going to be in moving forward with defunding the police and and, and medicare for all that stuff it's we need as many people as we can get because ultimately we do outnumber the fucking billionaires in this country we just don't know how to we don't always know how to harness that power and i think we're kind of learning how to do that better
0: absolutely i feel like that as a country we almost sometimes have this form of like stockholm syndrome where we forget oh we have the numbers mm-hmm. And that this is, in theory, they're public servants that work for us. And there's so much, obviously, just all of the power, the money, the resources. It's very easy to get lost in that. And yeah, and I imagine too, especially with a place like LA, which has, you know, relative to most any other, if not every other city in the US and possibly the world has seemingly unlimited resources. And it's like, fuck me, what a fight that must be to go against that.
1: Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's it's definitely a fight that's going to take a long time. But, you know, I mean, we have people who have been involved in the fight for a long time. We have people who who are just joining. We have someone like me who hasn't even been in the fight a year. And um, I think we need to all work together to just find the best way to. Go after these people, and I think we're we're again we're doing a really great job. We've had some really great victories, but the problem is, is that the fight is long. The fight is a very long fight, and it's a fight that takes many fronts. You know, it's like whether it's showing up to a protest, whether it's doing stuff on social media, writing an article, whatever it is. The fight is a long one, and you know, it's like we all have our own limits and capacity, and and we you know again we do the best we can. But the more and more people you have, the more people you have that can partake in the work, and who can who can you know we can all help each other it's all about mutual aid right making sure that everyone is taken care of and also like being willing to ask for help i think is a big thing and i've learned that even just like going to, to therapy so as as someone who who went through a very emotional thing you know it was kind of hard for me sometimes to like i found myself apologizing for talking about Melly. yeah you know, I find my, oh, I'm sorry. And people are like, oh, don't be sorry. And like, I just have this weird feeling of like, I don't want to be a burden on someone. I don't want to like saddle someone with my problems. And then as I, you know, as I kind of have gone on, I've realized like anyone who's going to be saddled with that problem or, or think it's a burden, I guess it's probably someone I don't, I don't want to keep around. You know no. what I mean?
0: No, I know exactly what you mean. There's no easy transition into this. We talked about this before the show that you're a big fan of Bright Eyes.
1: <laughs> yeah, definitely.
0: Like, I know for me that my introduction to Bright Eyes was, I mean, honestly, it was the 2005, I think, album, I'm Wide Awake It's Morning. Classic. It's incredible. It really is incredible. And I've been listening to the two or three or four, maybe, new tracks that are released off of his upcoming album or the upcoming album. And I think they're incredible. I really do. I absolutely love them.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm yeah, I'm I'm definitely a, a huge fan of him and, and Connor Oberst and Bright Eyes and all that. But yeah, I, as soon as those singles were out, I would listen to them and study them and like you know listen yeah. to like oh, I know Flea is, is like playing bass on the new album and just yeah. I, I mean, it's kind of crazy that he is still making incredible music. Like, yeah, dude, dude's been in the game for more than twenty years and he's still making really incredible tracks with like amazing lyricism and cool instrumentation all that and and i mean weirdly enough some of these songs are, are and i know he started writing these songs way before covid but yeah. some of them are weirdly like prophetic and really like uh, of the times you know
0: no i know exactly what you mean and just the idea that one of the songs and i want to say the song is i think it's forced convalescence or maybe it's persona non grata, where yeah persona non grata, i think it has two bagpipe solos Oh, yeah, yeah. Which, as a sentence, is amazing to me, because I just almost <laughs> marveled at what I just heard myself say. But it's also just, it's not in any way forced. It works perfectly with the song. And the idea that you could do that and then you could have such, I don't know, when I think of him, I just think of like, oh, musically, he can do anything. He is so talented and so just proficient, you know, like so musical, I guess. I don't know how to phrase it either way.
1: No, you're right. I mean, he's, and he's incredibly prolific. The guy has been, he's released at least one album, I think, since 2007. Like, it was Casadega, then it was, like, the first Conor Ober solo, then it was Mystic Valley Band, and Monsters of Folk, and then Bright Eyes, and yeah. then Desaparecidos, and I mean, the guy is just, like, his sort of oeuvre, or whatever, his, his musical library is so deep, and I think, like, some of his B-sides are better than most bands, like, full albums, you know, like, Absolutely. the guy, and, and I got to meet him, I want to say, like, a year and a half ago, and it was oh it was God. after after my sister Melly was killed he emailed me i guess he because we mentioned you know we played a bunch of his tracks at Melly's funeral and it was you know it was broadcast on like live tv and i ended my eulogy with uh, a quote from one of his songs and so he like reached out to me wrote me this incredible email and then i got to meet him a few months later after a show and it was like he's just a really cool guy and like I try to kind of talk to him about like, oh, like your music writing ability and like, how do you do it? He was kind of cagey, which is fine because I don't want to have him reveal all of his secrets, but I feel like, and I've heard Bob Dylan talk about it. Like sometimes, you know, he felt like it wasn't, him that was writing the song. It was it was the muse. It was the it was something in him. And I feel like Connor yeah. has I mean so much of that to spare. I think that's why he's always making music for different bands because I think he just he probably has ten or fifteen songs at any moment ready to go to like put to a new album. I'm so in awe of that guy. He he is just uh, and this new album is gonna be. I know it's I'm just gonna spend two days just in my bed listening to it and like taking it all in because like he still has a lot to say. And I think that it's watching someone like him growing up and and going from something like I'm. Wide awake it's morning, or digital ash in a digital urn to like where he is now is is such an interesting because he's only forty years old. Yeah, and he has such a fucking library. It's crazy, man. Like this guy is. I I mean, he is my favorite musician. I think. I think I've seen him fifty-one times in concert.
0: Oh my (laughs) god, that's impressive.
1: (laughs) So yeah, I I imagine he's.
0: I mean, just in general, obviously that you to your point, that's your favorite musician, but. I also imagine he's just because it's very like no frills, and that you know what you have with him that that he's amazing live. I'm sure, and that the fans that are there are as into it on a cellular level as you are. So that live experience must be fantastic.
1: Oh my God, yeah. I mean, and, and you know, I've seen I've seen everything from Bright Eyes to him solo to Desaparecidos, and and I think you find a lot of really dedicated fans, and I've I've made a lot of friends in line talking about Connor and nerding out over songs and all that sort of stuff, and and kind of what what I mentioned before we started recording is like i met I've met a lot of people online and mostly through Instagram around the country and around the world who love Connor and we connect with them with we connect with the music and, and a couple of months ago I had a little bit of a like a Zoom party where we just listened to Bright Eyes and nerded out over Connor and there's about uh, 10 of us them. and yeah some of you know there was a, one of my friends who's in like North Carolina one, a friend who's in Canada we all just met up and had wine and just talked about this music and it's it's you know and, and ultimately like for me this is um, as someone who has suffered loss and and has been through a lot in life that music means so much to me but it also means so much to like meet people who are into that and who like who feel the same way and like obviously our lives are different and the particulars are different and why we're, we're drawn to that music for completely different reasons but we found each other right and we can now yeah. talk about these things and and you know maybe you listen to this song and you think about your you know grandmother who passed away but i'll think about my sister wh- whatever it is you know and and, and sure. you know uh, melly that was one of her favorite bands too and we saw connor probably about 30 times together so you know for me that's another connection to her that that um i want to hold on to because I mean I remember singing those songs with her in the car or driving to, you know, the Bay Area to see him and and those amazing moments. And now, you know, that's just another layer of on on top of everything else, it's another layer of why the music means so much and and, and it's sort of a, you know, a bittersweet thing to like have a new Bright Eyes album and and have Melly not be around to like yeah, enjoy it. You know? So yeah, it's 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 a it's a whole
0: thing. To your point about like to just with the internet and just finding those people too. I kind of like it in my head too. It's like you're in a foreign country and you only find the only other person who speaks that same language. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, oh thank you know, oh my God, thank you. <laughs> Because especially, you know, to your point of something that is so meaning for you, meaningful for you on so many different levels and with such a long and story, to put it lightly, uh, history with the music and how you've done a lot of living through that music and with that music and had so many experiences with it. You know, with Bright Eyes and we're just, I guess, Conor Oberst in general, in my head, I've always thought of him as more as like, a, I guess, for lack of a better phrase, like an indie Beck, you know, this <laughs> person sure. who's sound and has really like evolved as, and you've kind of it's like you've really lived with him his musical experiences and as he's like discovering different sounds and but he's also like very prolific like i would imagine though that that when he does pass and hopefully that's a long time from now he's gonna be very prince-esque in that there's just some vault they're gonna uncover and it'll have like 50 albums in there
1: well yeah, 1 100%, 100%. <laughs> yeah.
0: And albums that he was doing just to either like kind of excise that from his mind or just to be like, yeah, I'm just going to make this masterpiece because I'm bored on a Sunday. <laughs> you know, like I he just seems like he has that in him and it like it's just in there and he just has to get it out. But not in a way that I, it seems to be like tragic or anything, which is good.
1: No, I mean, but I, I also you know I respect his vulnerability and I think the last few albums he's released have really touched on what he's going through and being someone who's getting older and who was married and all that sort of stuff and so yeah. I you know I think when I think about the, this kind of music and and I have a you know a couple other bands like arcade fire or whatever that I really love but yes. like Connor is is always my main dude because you know I mean I listen to him in my best years and my worst years and and depending on on where I'm at like a certain song will mean something and then it'll change meanings as, as time goes on like I have have some lyrics of a song of his called If the Breakman Man Turns My Way mm-hmm. uh, on my forearm. And, and it's, uh, it's a quote that I loved and, um, you know, meant something to me a few years ago. And now after having gone through what I've gone through, I kind of look at it and I'm like... <sighs> I shouldn't have gotten this tattoo <laughs> yeah you know just like oh man you know you never know but I mean again it, it meant something to me initially so I'm never gonna like get rid of it but you know again it's it's a testament to why art is is so meaningful in this world and, and that's something I, I never I try not to forget when I'm doing whatever work I'm doing is that like there's a reason why we want to help people there's a reason why we want people to be okay you know I, I, and it's the same with music I mean music can be as healing as anything else I mean I'm fully aware that like some of Connor albums have gotten me through very dark times and I, it took me a few weeks besides Melly's funeral like I couldn't really listen to his music for a while because yeah. it just hit me so hard and now I, I think about it and it's still you know songs can make me cry and make me feel really sad but but then you know I don't know sometimes they bring me back to like a moment where like things were okay and again that that is a double edged sword in some days like reminiscing is incredible and then other days that reminiscing is the worst thing that I can possibly do
0: nostalgia is a very powerful thing and it goes both ways certainly too in terms of what it evokes within you and what it kind of reminds you of you know whether it's a bad day or a bad time or you know or 2008 when you're eating a really good ham sandwich <laughs> there's no telling you know um what all do you want to point people toward before we wrap it up
1: yeah, I mean, I'd say check out No Olympics LA. We're at No LA on Twitter. Go to our website, nolympicsla.com I also roll with People City Council. Look us up on Twitter or Instagram. We're doing. I mean, if you're in LA, come out to a protest. If you're not, you know, boost us on socials. And there might be ways to, you know, especially with No Olympics, there's pe- there's ways for people to get involved remotely. I'm at Digital Earn on Twitter, and that's obviously a reference to, to a Bright Eyes album. So that's yeah. that's me right there. You know, <laughs> that's all you need to know. But yeah, I mean, you know, like I said, there there's um. If you're feeling like you want to get involved in something, if you're feeling, like, a little aimless and wandering and you, you want to help people out, there are ways to get involved. In, and even in your hometown, if you don't live in L.A., unfortunately, wherever you live, there's probably a need, for, especially for, like unhoused people feeding people that kind of stuff so like look up your local food bank look up some organizations that are helping people that are doing mutual aid because right now that's the most important thing is is if we take care of each other then we can all be in the fight and we can keep fighting for a world that, that looks like what we want it to look like and that that starts with taking care of each other whether that's something as simple as helping feed people or whether that's like being someone who can be there for for people. And also, I mean, listen, I'm just going to say this like don't be afraid to ask for help from anybody. Whatever Absolutely. help that whatever help that might be, whatever you might need, I think that there is no shame in that. And and it, and this is someone as someone who has struggled with like asking help from people. It, it is it's something that I think we all need to become more comfortable with doing. And obviously, you want to offer help and be there for people. But if you need help, also, don't be afraid to reach out to people. The, the people who love you and who care about you will be there for you. I promise you that. So just uh, be good to yourself and, um, you know, come come find me on, on the socials. And, and I'll try to, you know, I, I tend to sometimes be a little silly on there. But I also, you know, <laughs> kind of get a little political on there, too. So
0: No, absolutely. And I, I couldn't agree more about asking for help. And as somebody who, yeah, to similar in that I'm definitely one that is all about helping people. But then when they ask me about, you know, how I am, I just tend to go the other way. So I get that. And it's definitely been a learning experience for me. And too.
1: Brandon, please reach out to me. I, I've enjoyed our conversation. So I'm glad that we're connected on, on Twitter. I don't even Absolutely. know how you found me on Twitter, but I, I appreciate you having me on your show.
0: No, absolutely. And, and thank you again for being on because I really, I truly like admire the work that you're doing and the organizations that you're a part of, even though, yeah, I'm in Arkansas, not in LA, but it's a very like, um, very uplifting, fulfilling thing to to see all these kind of grassroots organizations really enacting change in general, you know, obviously, let alone amidst the pandemic and everything that's happening. So it's, it's really excellent stuff. So thank you again for being on.
1: Thank you, man. Appreciate you.
0: Everybody, it's okay to not be okay. Definitely. Please wear a mask. Ask for help if you need it, to Albert's point. And uh, thank you again for listening. Okay, bye.